0: sad. Oh, well. All right, guys. We are continuing on through the story of Moses and the people of Israel, God's people, and how God brings them out of Egypt and into the promised land. The story of the exodus, the story of how God shows himself to his people. So um, we started at the beginning of our time together by looking at God's holiness. As God calls Moses to go and to set his people free, the first thing that he says to Moses is what? Do not come closer. He demonstrates his holiness, his glory, his perfection, his majesty, his beauty, and his might. And then as Moses goes and he confronts Pharaoh, says let my people go, let God's people go. The next thing we see is we see the plagues. We see God's wrath and his justice, his judgment against all evil and wickedness. But then we saw the Passover. We saw the Passover and we saw God's love and his mercy as he saved his people, not only from his own wrath and judgment, but also from their slavery in Egypt. Then as they exited Egypt by God's power, by his love and by his mercy and grace, we saw his presence with them. As he went with them, Remember the pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire during the night, God dwelling amongst his people in the tabernacle. He is not a God who delivers to abandon, but a God who delivers for relationship. Well, even after all of those incredible things that they saw God do, all of those incredible miracles, the displays of his power and his mercy and his might, the people of Israel still struggled to obey God. They struggled to follow God. Ultimately, they struggled to trust God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where we will be Exodus 17 will be starting in verse one. So it's just a few days, weeks after God's, God has split open the Red Sea and saved the Israelites from one of the most powerful armies on the world in the world that wanted them dead. Now we see what happens next. 17, verse one, "All the congregation of the people of Israel And the people grumbled against Moses saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So what happened? Just a few days, a few weeks after, they've seen God do these incredible miracles and bring one of the most powerful empires in the world to its knees. Now they're in the desert and they say we're thirsty we're thirsty. Moses, again, they say, Moses, why did you just bring us out here in the desert to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. We would have been better off in th- with Pharaoh. Why did you bring us out here just to die of thirst in the wilderness, in the desert? Is God with us or not? Because it doesn't seem like it. Is God here or not? Because I'm thirsty, because I have needs. I have things that need to be taken care of and God's not doing his job. Either he's not good or he's not powerful because he's not doing what I want him to do. This is what the Israelites are saying to Moses. And you know what? This isn't just what they say in one instance. This is what they say over and over and over again. If we were to read the whole book of Exodus and on through the book of Numbers, what we see is this happens over and over and over again. In fact, even if you continue on through the rest of the Old Testament and you go beyond the time when they're in the promised land, we see the people of Israel complain. They whine all the time when God doesn't act in the way that they desire for God to act the way that they want God to act. And time and time again, they cry out, God, where are you? God, are you even with us? Do you even care? Do you even know what's going on? In fact, Moses does the same thing. You see this same story that we see here in Exodus chapter 17, we see a very similar story in Numbers chapter 20. Once again, the people are thirsty and they say, where is God? And God tells Moses this time not to go and to strike a rock with his staff, but instead to go and to speak to a rock. And that if he speaks to that rock, it will bring forth water for the people to drink. But Moses is frustrated. He's angry. And instead of doing it God's way, he does it his way. And he strikes the rock. And because of that disobedience, God tells Moses that he will not live to see the promised land. So my question for you then is, what exactly is the problem here? I mean, the Israelites were in the desert. They'd been there for weeks. They were legitimately thirsty. They were tired. Their feet were aching. They were having a bad time. They were, they were, people who had real, legitimate hardships and struggles and needs. So is the problem that they asked, why? Is the problem that they said, why is this happening, God? Is the problem that they were questioning? I don't think so. I don't think so. I wanna spend some time seeing exactly what the problem is, exactly why the Israelites Reaction here is is a problem, and then we'll see what that means for us. So first we have to say exactly what were the Israelites questioning. They've seen all these attributes of God displayed over the past few months and years. They've seen his holiness, his justice, his love. They've seen his presence. So are they questioning his holiness? No, I, I don't think they are. I don't see that here. Are they questioning His justice, I I don't see that either. Are they questioning his love? Maybe, are they questioning his presence? Possibly, right? They say, where is God? Is he with us or not? But I think ultimately what they're questioning as they're saying, why have we been brought out here? Why are we out here in the wilderness? Why don't we have water? I think what they're ultimately questioning is an attribute of God that we have not talked about yet, at least not directly. I think the attribute of God that they're questioning is something we call God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. What is sovereignty? What does that mean? You guys ever heard someone or something described as a sovereign? Probably not, because we don't have a lot of them today. Right? A sovereign is a king or a queen. It's a monarch. It's someone who rules with unquestioned authority over their domain, over their kingdom. So when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that he is the ruling and reigning king over the universe. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I'll give you a couple quick fire verses, examples of this attribute of God's sovereignty. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne and he rules over all. In Ephesians 1.11, it says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Job 42 verse 2, Job says to God, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says to God, you can do anything and no plan that you have can be thrown off by people like me. We also see God's sovereignty in places like Isaiah chapter six that we went over on Monday night. When we see God high and lifted up, seated on his throne, ruling and reigning over the universe. See, the Bible is full with this idea that God is the ruling and reigning king. So then, is it wrong for Israel to ask Christ questions of their king, God. Is it wrong for them to ask questions? I don't think it is. I think what's wrong is not that they're asking questions. I think what's wrong is the attitude with which they are asking. All right, so I've talked about my kids a lot this week. You guys have met them. You've seen them. Some of you guys went to class with Grant uh, at Entomology. Where you guys? Yeah. Bug class buddies. Yes. Elsa in Frozen 2. Yeah. Uh, You had to be there. Anyway. um, So Grant is four years old and he's a pretty sharp kid, pretty smart kid. And he's a very curious kid. He has all kinds of questions. He wants to know all kinds of things. He's obsessed with like the parts of the body, the systems of the body, and uh, like the circulatory system, the muscular system, the skeletal system, all these things. For his birthday, he was gonna have a PJ Mass birthday, but then he's like, no, I want a body parts birthday. And I was like, what in the world is that? And so his birthday, we literally had like big diagrams of like the muscular system on the wall, and uh, it, it worked because it was, his birthday's in October, so it was just like a lot of skeletons, those were easy to come by. Um, but he's just a really inquisitive, curious kid, and so one of his favorite words in the whole world as a curious four-year-old is what? Why? Why? He asks why all the time. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes I love when Grant asks why because it's his little brain wanting to grow, right? It's his, his little scientist mind wanting more and more and more knowledge. And I love that about my son. And sometimes Grant asks why and I hate it because the attitude is different. Right, sometimes he genuinely wants to understand why I've told him something or how something works. And other times he's asking why because he thinks he knows better than his dad. Right, sometimes I'll say, hey Grant, don't climb up there, buddy, you're gonna get hurt. Or I'll say, hey Grant, don't climb up there, buddy. And he'll go, oh, yes, daddy, why? And I'll go, because that's a mountain and you're gonna fall off and you're gonna die, you know? Um, But other times I'll say, hey Grant, hey Grant, don't climb up there, buddy. And he'll go, why? That's a different why, right? That's a very different why. Because the why over here, the the, yes, daddy, I'll obey you. And then I will ask why is a, I know that you're in control. Dad, I know that you're taking care of me. I know that you care for me, so I'm going to obey you. But then I'm going to say, why exactly did you not want me to do that? And as a dad, I have no problem explaining why I don't want him to climb. He was literally climbing those stairs over there. They're really sketchy. They don't have a handrail. Anyway, and so, so as a dad, I have no problem telling him, come on down. And then if he asks why, I'll say, because there's not a handrail, you can fall off very easily and get very hurt right? But if he asks why with a different attitude, and it's the why, that's not him being genuinely curious. That's him being angry at me for having the audacity to tell him that my plans are not the same as his. And that what I desire to happen in a situation is not the same as his desires. Because he thinks that he knows better than me. And you know what, he doesn't because he's four and four-year-olds are dumb. (laughs) Even my very smart one, if left to his own devices, would kill himself very quickly, okay? So, So, the difference is not the question that he asks. The difference is the attitude with which he asks that question. You see, the Israelites, as they were in the desert, they were asking, why? God, why don't we have this water? God, why is this so hard? But they weren't asking it in a way saying, God, we trust you. We know that you're in control. We know that you're sovereign, that you're ruling and reigning, that you're caring for us. But why does this have to be so hard? Instead, they were saying, God, do you even care? God, are you even here? God, why is this happening? It's a very different attitude. And this is something we all face in our own lives. See, you and I might not be trekking through the Middle Eastern desert, going days without water, and asking God why, but we have hardships. We have trials. We have difficulties in our life that cause us to ask the simple question, why? God, why is this happening? God, why is this friendship? that I value and love so much, why is it falling apart? Why do I feel like my friends are stabbing me in the back? God, why did this person that I love, this relative that I love, why did I lose them? Why did they pass away? God, why is this difficulty happening in my life? Why is this hardship happening in my life? Why are my parents having these these fights? Why, Why is this happening? We have these these questions of why. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And I think that question is okay to ask as long as our attitude is right. As long as we remember who God is and who we are, our God does not despise our questions. And we can come to him and say, God, why is this happening? in a spirit of humility, come to our Heavenly Father and ask Him, or rather say, like I wish my son would more often, yes, Daddy, why? I'll obey, I'll listen, I'll do what you've said, but please tell me why is this happening? What's going on? But the good news for us is this, You see, if our question is, why is this happening? Why is this trial happening in my life? Why is this hardship happening in my life? Our God gives us an answer to that question. Our God answers the question that so many of us ask, the question of why. You see, the truth is, we don't have difficulty and hardship and pain in our life because God is not powerful. We don't have pain and difficulty and hardship in our life because God is not in control. We don't have pain and difficulty and hardship in our life because God fell asleep at the wheel and isn't paying attention to what's going on in His universe. We don't have pain and difficulty and hardship in our life because the sovereign king of everything is not ruling and reigning over his kingdom. But he does give us an explanation for why if the good and powerful God of the universe is still in control, then why are our lives hard? Why are they painful? He gives us answers in his word. And I think those answers, although they're all over Scripture, I think they, they break into two, two major answers. Two primary th- answers to why we face this difficulty, this suffering, this hardship. Why did this terrible thing happen? Why are we in a place in our lives where we feel like we're in the middle of a desert with no water in sight? Two big answers to this. The first is that God tells us that those trials, those hardships, those difficulties, are actually for our good. They're for our good. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Romans eight. We've been spending a lot of time in Romans eight over the last week, and there's a reason for it. It's wonderful, beautiful chapter. It's a famous verse, Romans 8, 28, that we're going to look at. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, for those who are in Christ, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus and who by the power of the Holy Spirit are called sons and daughters of the King, for those who love God, all things work together for their good. All things, not all happy things, but all things, all happy things, all sad things, all hard things, all easy things, all comfortable things, all painful things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Guys, that is a promise from the king of the universe, from the sovereign God over all of creation, his promise to you, if you love him, if you put your faith and your trust in him, if you have trusted in his son, if you are filled with his spirit, his promise to you is that all things will work together for your good. Now, does that mean that you will always make the team that you wanna make? Does that mean that you will always get the grade that you wanna get? Does that mean when you grow up, you'll always make the paycheck you wanna make? Does that mean that if you're a theater nerd like me, you'll always get the part that you want in the play? No. Because what we have to understand when we see that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, what we have to understand is that when he says that all things work together for our good, he's not saying that all things work together for what you think is good. He's not saying that all things work together for what you believe your good to be. He's saying all things work together for your real and true and actual good. And what is that? What is that good? Well, we see the answer if we keep on reading. If we don't stop in verse 28, but if we move on to verse 29, he says in verse 28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him in order that we might be conformed into the image of his son. You see, your good is not more money. Your good is not more popularity. Your greatest good is not more friends. Your greatest good is not more comfort. Your greatest good is not a healthy, happy life. Your greatest good is to be like Jesus. What you were made for, what you were knit together in your mother's womb for, what you were called to before the foundations of time is to be like Jesus. Your greatest good in this life is to be more and more and more like Christ. And all of those trials, all of those hardships, all of those difficulties are part of God molding you and shaping you more and more and more into the image of Jesus to make you more and more and more like Christ. Why? So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers because being made like Christ is being made Part of the family of God. So that's the first answer. Why these trials? Why these hardships? Why these difficulties? It's because your Heavenly Father is making you more and more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ, that you might bear the family resemblance. It's for your good. That's the first answer. The next answer we see in the next chapter of Romans, in Romans chapter nine. God causes all these things to work together for our good, all these trials, all these difficulties, all these hardships for our good. But he also does it for his glory, for his glory. Look in Romans chapter nine. We're gonna look at 917. And actually here in the book of Romans, Paul, who by the power of the Holy Spirit wrote this book, he looks back to the story we've been talking about, the story of Pharaoh, the story of Moses, the story of the Exodus, and this is what he says about God working things, even difficult, hard things, together for his glory. He says this in verse 17 of chapter nine. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was a source of difficulty, of hardship, of trial, and of pain for millions of people. He was an evil, despotic tyrant. He was a wicked king who ruled mercilessly over God's people but did you catch what it said there in chapter nine, verse 17? Said that God says to Pharaoh, for this reason, I have raised you up. I have raised you up that my power might be shown. You see, God allowed a wicked man like Pharaoh to come to power in order that God might show that his power is greater. Why? So that his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth and so that he might receive the glory that he rightly deserves as the marvelous, majestic king of the universe. It was for his people's good, but it was also for his glory, for his glory. And when we hear that, maybe some of you are even thinking this, when you hear that God allows these kinds of difficulties and trials to come along because it glorifies him because it's a place for him to show his power, we might ask the question, well, does that mean that God's selfish? If God is allowing this this wickedness and and difficulty and hardship, then doesn't mean that he's acting selfishly, selfishly, but of course he's not. Of course he's not, that's not who God is. Look back to Romans 8, chapter eight, verse 18. Paul says this, actually, before I read that, I want to give you a little background on Paul. I think it's important. Paul is not a guy who's had an easy life at this point. You see, Paul is a guy who grew up with a relatively easy life, but then he started following Jesus and his life got a whole lot harder really quick. He went from being a guy who had trained in in the best schools, under the best teachers, who had everything going for him, who had power and prestige and authority, to being a guy who had some kind of physical handicap. We talked about this, that caused him constant pain. From being a guy who was shipwrecked multiple times, beaten to within an inch of his life, countless times, was imprisoned, And not like a nice prison where they have TV and three meals a day, like an old school prison where they throw you in a pit in the ground. And if you survive prison, you're happy. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was constantly under threat from robbers, he was bitten by snakes. This guy had a hard, painful, difficult life. And you know what? It wasn't hard and painful and difficult until the day he started following Jesus. And then his life got really hard, really fast. He saw his friends die. He saw them murdered before his very eyes because they proclaimed the same Jesus that he did. He faced betrayal and pain and suffering and heartache physically, emotionally, spiritually. You name it, Paul faced it. He had an incredibly difficult life. And with that backdrop, this is what he says. He says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that heartache, all of that difficulty. Paul says it doesn't even hold a candle to the glory of God, because he understands why he was made. He understands that his greatest good is to be made into the image of Christ, that he might see more clearly the glory of his heavenly Father, that he might see more clearly the majesty of the king of the universe, that all of this pain and suffering and trial is not worth comparing to the gift that he's been given in Jesus, to the glory that is going to be revealed to him by his father, God. So our good is being made like Christ, but our good is also that God's glory be shown. Now here's the thing, guys. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we talk about the fact that God is in control, that he rules, that he reigns, and that God is in control even when our lives are difficult. God is sovereign even when we face difficulty and hardship and pain. It's really easy to talk about these ideas, but it's a lot harder when we start to make them personal. It's really easy to say yes, okay, God's always in control until you come up to a point in your life where it's just hard where you're in pain, where someone hurts you, where you lose someone you love. It's really easy to talk about God as being sovereign, even in difficulty, until you're the one in the difficulty. And in those moments, we look around and we go, I don't understand. I don't understand how this could possibly be for my good. I don't understand how this trial, how this hardship, how this pain could possibly make me more like Jesus. I don't understand how it could possibly give glory to God or be an opportunity for God to show his power. I don't see how this works. It's really easy to talk about it until you're the one in that situation, and then you go, I don't understand how this could possibly be for my good or for God's glory. How many of you guys have pets? So I've talked a lot about my kids this week, but my wife and I were married for eight years before we had Grant, before we had our oldest. And for eight years before we had, you know, actual like human children, we had a dog and his name was Tufer. Tufer has since passed away. Um, but uh, Tufer but was a great dog, great dog. We, we got him at the pound when he was a puppy. They told us he was a border collie. He grew up into some kind of pit bull mix thing. I don't really know. Um, they totally tricked us. It's fine. We loved him by the time we knew what he was. And um, Tufer was a, a great, great dog, but Tufer had this disease called Addison's disease. and. Um, it wasn't a major, major thing, but it meant that we had to go to the vet a lot. Tufer had to get a shot once a month. He had to take a pill every day. and um, There was a time when, we, when he was first diagnosed with this disease when we were trying to figure out the dosages and things where we were going to the vet like every week, and we didn't have any money, so that was not a great thing. Anyway, um, but when we took Tufer to the vet, it struck me what it must be like to be a dog going to the vet. Right, because, because he can't understand why we're there. See, I, I understand why we're there, but Tufer but can't understand why we're at the vet. All he knows is that he gets in the car, awesome, we're going to the park, oh no, we're at this place, right? And, and I, I bring him out of the car and I take him into the waiting room and he's hit with all kinds of smells, right? It smells to me, it's like my human nose. So a dog nose is just overwhelmed with all, his, all of these different smells of all of these different animals and, and, it, and, it, and it overwhelms him and he hears the dogs in the back, the yelping and the barking and things and he starts to get scared, right? And I feel him shaking, And then they call us in and we go back into the exam room and they they pick him up and they put him on that metal table. And there he is on this cold metal table and someone he doesn't know walks in and they take needles and they start poking them into him. And you see, I, as his owner, as like a human person with a fully developed brain, I know what's going on, right? Right? I know that we are there because if we don't go, then he will die. I know that we're there because he needs to get that shot or else his kidneys will stop working and he is going to die. But he doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. And even if he could, like, speak English, I could tell him, twofer, we have to go to the vet so that you can get this shot so that you'll feel better later. Even if he could hear that and understand my words, he doesn't understand the concept of the future. So even if I could explain it to him, I couldn't make it make sense in his dog brain. And so while I know that we're there for a reason, all he knows is that he's in this place where his senses are overwhelmed, where there's too much to take in, where it's cold, where it's hard, where it's painful. All he knows is that it's cold, it's hard, it's painful, it's scary. He has no idea what I'm doing. But what he does know is he knows me, and he knows that I love him, and he knows that I care for him, and he knows that if I'm there, I'm in control of the situation. He knows that he can trust me even when he doesn't know exactly what's going on and even when there's no way with his dog brain that he could possibly see what good could come of this. He couldn't possibly understand how getting a needle, a sharp thing jabbed into him, could actually make him healthier. He can't possibly wrap his brain around that, but he knows that I'm there, that I have my hand on his back, and that I care for him. See, he doesn't have to know what's going on. He doesn't have to know why we're there because he knows that if I'm there, it's for his good. And so while he might still be scared and while he might still be shaking, he's not fighting. He was a big, strong dog. He could have caused a lot of pain to a vet tech if he wanted to, but he didn't because I was there. He trusted me. He couldn't understand what was going on. But the truth is he didn't have to because he understood that I was in control and that I loved him and that what I was doing was for his good. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Guys, we can't understand the mind of God. We can't always know why he's doing exactly what he's doing the way that he's doing it. We can ask why. We can hope with time that he will reveal to us exactly what he was doing, but sometimes we won't get those answers this side of eternity, this side of heaven. Sometimes we just won't know and couldn't even understand why God does what he does. We're not called to understand, we're called to trust and to know that the ruling and reigning king of the universe, that he is in control, that he knows us, that he loves us, and that everything that happens, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, it is for our good that we might be made more and more like Jesus and it is for his glory that one day we might see the glory of God that is not even worth comparing the trials of this world. He's given us the greatest gift that he ever could. He's given us himself. We don't need to know why he's doing things the way that he is. We just need to trust that he's in control. Let's pray. Dear God, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can trust you. Father, there's freedom in knowing that we can't know. There's freedom in knowing that we aren't the ones who are in control of the world, that we aren't the ones calling the shots, but that you are. God, I am so grateful that I am not in control. Father, please teach me, teach all of us to rest in the fact that you are present that you are sovereign, that you are ruling and reigning, that you are in control. And God, that even when we can't see how it could possibly be true, we can trust you and trust that you are working all things together for our good and for your glory. Love you in Jesus' name. Amen.